A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. In Ukraine, the government has set up this phone line. It's your soldiers' call, Russian soldiers, if they want to surrender. Ukraine says over 3,500 soldiers have texted or called the number. One of my coworkers, Valerie Kipnis, has been looking into this hotline and hopefully speaks Russian. So what did they just say? So they said hello to one another, and then the guy asked, is this Ukraine? And the guy in the hotline answered, yeah, this is Ukraine. And then the soldier said, I got a text that if we wish to surrender, call this number. You got a text? Yeah, people pass around the number on social media and Telegram. There's even a website for it. It's called hachujrits.com. And that means? I want to live.com. That's very direct. Yeah. On it, it reads, Servicemen of the Russian Armed Forces, do you notice that you're greeted not with flowers, but with fire and curses? Do you notice that your commanders run away first? Save your life for yourself and your family. Stop fighting for other people's slogans. Contact us. Save your life. Yeah. Okay, so what happens in this call? One interesting thing is that the guy doesn't seem to know if he can actually believe them. He's questioning if he can trust them. He's saying, you won't be cutting our balls off? And then the hotline guy answers, no, those are myths you guys are being fed. No one's going to be cutting anybody. Don't worry. Wait, but can I ask you, like, why would somebody who's calling this number, like, why would they trust them? Well, obviously, it's a scary decision, and they have to judge it for themselves. But on the website, it it says, you know, we follow the Geneva Conventions for the treatment of prisoners of war, and they say they guarantee certain things. Three meals a day, medical service, legal support from international organizations, and regular communication with relatives. What else happens in this call? Well, there's a bunch of stuff about how does this actually work? Like, how do I surrender? Where should we come by? The soldier asks. The hotline guy says, if you're fighting, then you're probably located in a certain region. Well, yeah. And you'll come pick us up? Yeah. We need to understand where you are and whether you really want to surrender. For that, I need your information. And then I'll contact you. And then you can surrender, if you wish. Does the soldier sound nervous to you? Yeah. On the call, you can kind of hear him trying to make the decision of whether to do this or not. We didn't even want to come here. We were ordered. Now I'm thinking about what I can do. The guy in the hotline says, so as I'm telling you, if you want to, you can surrender and then return back home. Please understand there's a Geneva Convention that says that a combatant has no criminal liability so long as he did not commit war crimes. In which case, you'll be returned home through a prisoner swap. The soldier says, understood. Thank you. The hotline guy says, yeah. Call anytime. Okay, so then the guy just hung up? Yeah. Do we have any idea, like, whether he went through with it? No idea. Huh. Yeah. Were you able to find anybody who actually used the hotline and then surrendered? So I spent a lot of time trying to find someone who had done that, um, and I stumbled across an interview with a guy who tried, and he told his whole story. Yeah. So this is the guy. 
Tell me about him. He's young, 22 years old, kind of lanky. He was studying to be a computer programmer and then was drafted into the army last fall. Because they have, like, mandatory military service in Russia still. Yeah, every Russian guy has to do it. And there he was assigned to be a rifleman and an assistant grenade launcher. Mm -hmm. But he had friends in Ukraine. And from the start of the invasion, he was very skeptical of the war. And is he part of the invasion? No, at least not right away. But he says he has a close friend who sent into combat and dies the first day of the war. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then he starts talking to his other friend, the only person he really trusts, who's in the army with him. And they start talking about maybe we should surrender, like maybe we should leave. And at first they're on the same page. But then the closer they get to the front line, the less on board his friend starts to get. And one night, after he gets news of a successful counteroffensive in Kharkiv, he decides to go alone. He's actually in Russia. That's where he's based. And he says after an eight-hour shift, he walks out of the barracks, heads west with a map and compass, and walks for two days. This seems so dangerous. Like the Ukrainians could see him coming and just decide to shoot him. Yeah, or the Russians could see him fleeing. And after walking, finally, he makes it to the border. And that's when he calls the hotline. The interviewer asks him about it. Wait, who is doing the interview? So it's one of these two Ukrainian YouTubers who seem to have some connection with the Ukrainian government. The soldier says he heard about the hotline from friends living in Ukraine. And also this girl, a good friend of his. The host asks, what's her name? She'll probably watch this. He says, her name is Anya. He reaches the hotline over Telegram. They told him to make his way to a village in Ukraine, where Ukrainian servicemen would be waiting for him. He got his last bits of energy together and started to make his way over. When I got to where they told me to go, it was sunset, not totally dark yet. And I just looked at the village for a long time. Truth be told, I was scared I wouldn't make it, that I'd just get shot. That was the scariest part. And then the interviewer interrupts. He says, seeing as you're here now, you didn't get shot. And he says, yeah, but I know what I look like in a Russian uniform. There could be an incident where I would get shot without any questions. So what happens? So once he gets there, he meets a Ukrainian woman and asks her for directions. She says, my kids can walk you there. They're going to come back alive, right? And he swears that he won't hurt anyone. So the kids walk him to the school gymnasium. He gives the boy his pocket knife as a thank you. And then he's in. How many times were you beaten? Not once. How about tortured? Never. In fact, they offered us candies and sweets. Though I should point out, the UN has documented human rights abuses against Russian prisoners of war in Ukraine. They weren't reported to be systematic. Yeah, well, what about the fact that they're allowing video interviews with prisoners of war to go online? Yeah, that's potentially a violation of the Geneva Conventions. There are rules in there about not turning prisoners of war into subjects of public curiosity. So then after that, like, he's basically in a POW camp, like waiting for a prisoner swap to go home? I'm not sure he wants to go back. And I'm not sure what would happen to him if he did. 
He's given his full name on YouTube, admitting publicly he deserted the Russian army. Also, he says that he doesn't believe in Russia's version of the war. Like he says in the video, you're on your way to kill innocent people that are just defending their own country. Then, when the interviewer asks him if he'd like to make a call home, he says no, politely. His parents have different views on the war than him. Instead, he calls his friend Anya, the one who told him about the hotline. Mm-hmm. There's a short clip of him on the phone. He updates her on his status and then says, Tell me how you're doing. My life is such a mess right now. The way Russia sees the war and the way Ukraine sees it are like two different realities. But you know, there are so many places where that kind of thing is true, where one reality bumps up against another. And people try to coax each other across the line from one side to the other. But crossing over, not that many people do it, because it's so hard to do, it seems so dangerous. Today on our program, we have people trying to sweet-talk each other across that line, with reason and with guile and with whatever they got. It's such an act of faith in each other, even to try. Kind of inspiring, really. From WBZ Chicago, this is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us, please. Act one, flies, meet honey. So this woman, Aubrey, has been calling elections administrators all over Texas for nearly two years. And as a case study of people trying to coax others over to their side, it's not going too well. She questions them, accuses them. There's one call uh, I want to play a little bit of kind of sums things up. At the beginning of the call, the official is very calm, saying things like, Aubrey, But pretty quickly, uh, Aubrey is asking him about things that he can't comment on because they're the subject of lawsuits. Lawyers have told him not to talk about them publicly. But Aubrey, she doesn't accept that. She keeps pushing. Your county attorney, they don't they don't want you to give information to the voters. All I all I'm telling you is I'm following their advice, Aubrey, and I look forward to a time when I'm able to talk more freely about this. So you're not able to talk freely about the issues in the elections because one part of it has been filed with a court of law? Aubrey, did you not understand what I said earlier when I, I said I'm not? I do not. Could you help me understand? I, I think I've spoken clearly in English that I have, that I can't speak about this because of the current and ongoing litigation. As you can hear, this gets hotter and hotter. He's an elections administrator in a county in central Texas and has had years of stop the stealers now questioning him like this. They flood elections offices with records requests. They sue. For long uh, in this call, Aubrey is quoting Texas legal code that she believes mandates that all ballots in Texas should be pre-numbered sequentially starting at 1, which um, isn't done today with computers counting votes. And the elections administrator snaps. What else would you like to quote, chapter and verse? Okay, sure. Incorrectly. Sure. Um, so you're sitting in violation of the state and national constitutions because the state... Incorrect. State- wrong. Next. Uh, let me finish, sir. The Secretary of State does not have the authority to circumvent Texas election codes. 52. You're mistaken. Uh, you're no, mistaken. No, I'm not. I don't even have to let you finish. I can tell you right now off the bat you're mistaken. Next. Can you tell me the election code that you, that you can cite that allows you to circumvent the 52.062 and 62.009? Request you don't know, you don't know it off the top of your head like I do, but you don't know the, the codes in the law off the top of your head? 
I don't. Okay. Do you do you have you read, have you read the national I'm pretty constitution? Pretty smart. Pretty smart. And yeah, I've read the Constitution. It's not a shut in score of that. Yeah, no, you're I'm, not. I'm you're not. I'm going to ask going, you. No, here's what you're going to do. I'm gonna, you're no, gonna no, no, no. You're not going to tell me you're what going I'm going to do. You're going to, review the, you're going to review the national and state constitutions is what's going to happen. No, that actually, what's it's not, happen. Aubrey. Thank are you, you, refu- are you, are you now refusing to review the national and state constitutions for your own education? I am. And here's how I'm going to refuse that. By the by, the coming song clip that you're about to hear in three, two, one... Because of these kinds of encounters between elections officials and activists, it gets very uh, personal sometimes. In the last few years in Texas, lots of election administrators have quit or retired. The entire staff of an elections office in Gillespie County quit at the same time because of accusations of fraud, obscene racist emails, threats. People call the cops on these officials and try to get them arrested while they're doing their jobs. But there is another path. That woman, uh, Aubrey Campbell, that you just heard, she happens to live in a county in Texas, Tarrant County, where the elections administrator is not the guy who you just heard on the phone. The official in Tarrant County is this uh, singular, kind of remarkable figure. We learned about him uh, from Natalia Contreras, who's been reporting on elections in Texas for months now, for Vote Beat, which covers all this in depth around the country. Natalia says there's really nobody else like him that she's been able to find. He's very effective for some special reasons that uh, Natalia will explain in a bit. His name is Haider Garcia. And watching him, it's hard not to feel like if anybody could convince the election doubters that our elections can be trusted, or at the very least, if anybody could make headway with them, it would be this guy. And to try to see uh, how successful he is in winning over the election skeptics and the Stop the Steelers, and to see the limits to that success, earlier this month on Election Day, Natalia and Zoe Chase from our staff co-reported a story where the two of them followed Hyder around as he managed the election in Tarrant County and as he dealt with the election doubters, and Aubrey in particular. Here are Natalia and Zoe. Let's start with Aubrey. She's just one of many people in Texas who have made it almost their full-time job to challenge election officials. And they all have some kind of story like this to explain how they got into it. In Tarrant County, when Joe Biden won, it didn't really make any sense to Aubrey. It's a Republican county. Republicans won down the ballot. But the president, somehow Biden won. Then when Biden took Tarrant County, we were really upset because Trump has a lot of vocal support here. And I don't know a single Democrat. None of my Democrat friends voted for Biden in the primaries. They all voted for Bernie. So you talk to him one-on-one, they know something's not right. Aubrey doesn't look like other activists I see in this world, who are mostly elderly and retired. She's 33, but looks way younger. She's white, petite, round hipstery glasses, leather jacket. She describes herself as a conservative metalhead. She stands out. It was post-2020, because I remember the whole thing started with her um, interacting with an election judge. This is Haider Garcia. She was really frustrated. She took out her cell phone, started recording the poll worker, saying, you're obstructing me from voting. The poll worker said, you can't use your phone here. And a whole situation started to happen. You know, that's when I started interacting with her. And, you know. Coffee. It's 6.30 a.m. on election day. Haider Garcia is the kind of person who carries around his own coffee grinder to grind his own beans for his morning coffee. Fastidious, neurotic, 
he has high standards for himself and his coffee. He oversees every aspect of the election with the same fastidiousness. He sets the whole thing up. He trains the workers. He tells us he's been working on not being a micromanager, which you only say if you are. Hyder is taking a particular approach with people like Aubrey. It's something I haven't seen any other Texas election officials do. His strategy is to go as far as humanly possible to answer every question and address every suspicion. He treats everything they say like it's worthy of an answer. It's like radical patience. And when you see him do it, you see why other officials don't. Because it takes hours. It's a big part of his job now, on top of all the work of running an election. They call with some issue. He's like, come in, let me walk you through it. Let me show you around. Here's a typical example. So there was this one time, uh, one, of, one of our watchers came in and he was like, you know, if I, he was in the tally room with us and he said, this was back in, I think it was last year. Uh, if, I, if I were in charge here, I would make all the walls in this room glass so that you could see where every cable goes and you could be totally transparent, something like that. And I looked at him and said, why do you want that? He says, well, because we should know where every wire goes so we can know if you're connected to the internet or not. And I said, well, but the whole point is to show that the machines are not connected to the internet, right? We're talking about the servers and the tally room. So there shouldn't be any cable going to the machine. So I told him, what about if we rearrange the room so the machines are not like in this little cabinet under the desk, but up where you can see them and you can, he said, well, maybe that would be a start. So the next election, they came back in a runoff. You know, when they walked in the room, I told them all the machines are on top of the tables. You can see the back. They're against the glass. They're labeled what each one of them does. This is what you wanted, right? And so he had that moment of, again, okay, well, you got me on that one. Um, and it, it's little things like that that we keep doing, right? Like In theory, uh, any election official could go this far, answer every question if they wanted to. Though in some ways, Hyder's uniquely suited for this. He's a computer engineer. He's designed voting machines. So he can answer, in detail, any question, technical or not, in a way few officials ever can. And for this election morning, as people are going out to vote, he's rigged up his office like some kind of air traffic control tower. It's a big room, and he's installed this enormous screen in it. And we're looking at every polling place marked on a huge Google map, 316 of them. They're all color-coded with wait times. If there's a problem at a polling place, the color changes to mark the level of urgency. Low, medium, critical. Then, on a separate map, Hyder can see if a tech is dispatched to fix something, he can watch them travel out there on the map, like an Uber. We can see how long it's going to take. Not long after the polls open, around 8 a.m., he gets a call. Natalia. Hyder holds up the phone to me. He points at it and says it's Aubrey. Hey, morning. Doing good? Um, so there's a picture going around, and it's, and it, and it's purported to be uh, a map of outages of all of the uh, machines. Is that, are you having issues with that? This is like a lot. I'm going to send it to you to, uh, just so you see what this is. Gonna all right. Know it. People are, you know, it's going to go, it's going to go crazy. It hasn't been like, um, shared publicly yet with the person who sent it, from the person who sent it to me, but it could go, you know, how fast stuff can catch fire. This is the yeah, kind of call I, she I makes to election officials all over Texas. Like, like something seems fishy okay, here, sure and what do you have to say for yourself before it goes viral? Yeah, send it to me. I'll take a look, see what it is. Please, that'd be great. 
Yeah, I, I texted to you, um, and so this is what it looks like, and so I don't know what this is, but if that's what that is. That's the wait times. No, 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 no. That is the map of wait times. It's that's literally the map we're looking at. That's also on the elections website, with the wait times of polling places. It's not a map of outages. That's every single polling place in Tarrant County, and it's showing the wait times. They should be in green, yellow, and red for short, medium, and long lines. And actually, if you look at the picture, it says right there. Yeah, but I didn't know if that's exact. I didn't know. I don't know the All right. context. So, okay. No, that's fine. Send me anything you have a concern about. We'll look into it. Okay, I'll, I'll make sure that, that's, that they understand that and they don't share it out wrong. Awesome. Appreciate it. All right. Shockingly amicable. It doesn't escalate. And she seems to believe him, which is wild to me, to see one of these election fraud activists actually take the word of an elections official. She seems to trust what he's saying because of all her dealings with Hyder to this point. Hyder says she calls a lot. To the point where you have her number saved and she has your Yeah, yeah, no, and I give everybody, everybody, I give everyone my cell phone. I'd rather they call me directly and say, hey, you know, do this deal with it rather than wait until it snowballs and I find out at four in the afternoon that the map has been going around. It's like, done. I told you what it is. doesn't go any further than that, hopefully. Hyder's clicking around on his computer. He's watching the polling places. He has calls coming in. He's checking in with his wife and kids. He's got the news on. He says he's glad he's not in Arizona. He's also on Twitter and on Telegram. He spends a lot of time, election day and always, monitoring what the activists are saying to anticipate what they're going to want from him. Haider is so fanatical about following these channels that when he hears about a new conspiracy theory, he'll dive deep and work it all the way out so he can disprove it if anyone brings it up. Like this one guy Aubrey was talking about, this kind of famous right-wing activist, Seth Keschel, who goes by Captain K., he had some math that supposedly proved that Trump won Tarrant County. Okay, I actually looked at his methodology and, and tried to run the numbers and, you know, just to understand, because people come in here, I got some of these people who come in and say, well, Captain Keschel said, well, first of all, it's so flawed, the whole method, right? So when you sit down, I've explained it to him. I said, have you actually run the numbers on his method? And do you understand how it works? No. So I sat her down and I explained to her the math behind it. I said, do you understand that this is bullshit, right? What's the premise that he's using that's like the false premise? That he can project how people vote in November based on how the primary was. Hmm. Let's geek out. Okay. <laughs> Let's geek out. <laughs> Hyder just happens to have a whiteboard markers handy. He starts drawing a line graph to show us. Here's what he says. He says that he can take the registration, right, from any point in time. He walks us through it just like he did for Aubrey. The captain really drives him crazy. Just today, he saw him railing against early voting on his Telegram channel. His voting history, have you looked at it? I just looked today. You just looked today at Seth I, Keschel's voting history? I was going to, he says, we have to get rid of early voting. Early voting's not safe. For the last 10 years, he's voted early voting every single election. We checked. It's at least the past six years. As you go through his voting history and you compare what he says to what he does, it's like, Dude, really? Like, you want to get rid of all these things because it's not safe, but you take advantage of them because you need to and because it's more convenient for you? 
But like you, Hyder, are taking the time to make a public records request of Seth. Ke like, what are you even gonna do with that? Nothing. I just some of these people. Again, it's kind of like, should I take this one serious or not? Hyder started monitoring the stuff at first because he was worried about his own safety. Back in 2020, he was at the center of a national trolling firestorm because even though he was born in the United States, he grew up in Venezuela and worked for a while for the voting machine company Smartmatic. You know, Smartmatic. It's at the center of a ton of conspiracy theories. Hyder's name blew up. Hyder Garcia. This Venezuelan-born operative now serves, believe it or not, as election administrator for Tarrant County, Texas. That's a county which turned blue for the first time since 1964 after the introduction of, dum-dum-dum, new electronic voting machines. Hmm. Well, evading That's Michelle Malkin on Newsmax. Trump allies Sidney Powell and Lou Dobbs were also talking about him. After that, he got lots of racist messages. He got death threats. People shared his home address online. And suddenly, local activists in Texas had this hometown supervillain to investigate and talk about and publicize. People made their own videos. Aubrey made one that's two hours long. It's called Hyder Smartmatic Garcia. And it included a lot of inaccurate information about his time with Smartmatic. He sold their machines to the, Philipp to the legislature of the Philippines. Um, so not only did he design the machines, he also, I mean, this guy is a real go-getter, okay? I mean, he also went out and sold it to um, the Philippines, who later had a big, big issue with them, right? And we'll flip over and watch that video in just a moment. He was also... At some point, Hyder decided he had nothing to hide. He didn't do anything wrong. He went on the offensive, submitted testimony to Congress, threatened to sue Aubrey for defamation. She put out an apology video. Okay. <laughs> I have to issue what I guess you could call a retraction. I just want to be clear. Aubrey is not some big, yeah, famous internet right, activist. Right. She has fewer so than a thousand followers. She works in restaurants. She's part of this whole world of people out there on Telegram and stuff like that since the election sharing their own analysis of what they think is election fraud, probably sincerely, and asking for donations. What makes Hyder so mad about Aubrey and some others is he sees it like she's using this narrative of him, that she's fighting this big, bad Venezuelan operative to build up her own brand. And does she sell merchandise? Yeah. What does she sell? I don't know. She's got stuff there. I bought two shirts and two mugs. No, you didn't. He didn't. Aubrey says she doesn't sell much merch, and she doesn't ask for donations much either. The merch reads Taking Back Texas, which is Aubrey's brand. Oh, that is a lot of merch. Throughout the morning, Hyder's constantly running back and forth, checking in on the people managing the phone bank. To the point where one of them literally says to him, Hyder, I need to focus now. His phone keeps blowing up with calls about minor technical issues, machines going down at polling places. Arlington, Miller, that, that's the hot spot right now. I've got calls from both sides on that one. There's other types of problems, people problems. One poll worker, while demonstrating how to help voters vote, accidentally voted as someone else 
with a similar name. There's a problem with the poll judge. Well, with the alternate to the judge. Hey, um, question. I do have one for you. I do have one for you. Um, uh, judge called and said she thinks her alternate has been drinking and is caring. <laughs> and caring and caring. And said, apparently she, he said something like, I'm, I'm caring and I'm here to protect you if it's necessary. And she said she's been alcohol. So we're going to tell him to call law enforcement and have them assess the situation. Mostly. Heider's upbeat, excited, jokey. When his assistant Troy brags about how he's about to buy an F-150 hybrid, Heider's like, can you not drive it to work right after the election? People are going to be like, see, they got that big George Soros payout. You're Ford Soros, he says. Heider's phone rings. It's Aubrey again. Hey. Hey, sorry. Um, so someone um, kind of prominent uh, locally is um, saying that she's been told machines in Hearst are down and that they're not going to be serviced or replaced. In a mostly Republican part of town, a controller went out. The line was long. This is the kind of thing that happens in every election. Usually it's no big deal. But now, everyone is suspicious they're being targeted. Brooks, no, Brookside had, did have an issue. There was a tech dispatch there a while ago. They should be, they should be on site actually right now. Yeah, nothing's not going to not get serviced. That'll be the stupidest mistake I can make. <laughs> All right, so if, you know, do you have a lot of other locations where the controllers or the no. tech leader are um, I think uh, Grapevine and the library, they had two strings and one of them had an issue. And Miller. I think that one was a scanner, but that's not a problem because they put him in the... They can still vote. They just put them in the emergency bin and the board, the ballot board adds them in once we get it back here. Oh, yeah, they're going to they're gonna throw a fit about that, though. This happened on a huge scale in Arizona, and people did throw a fit about it. Aubrey tells Heider she's going to go check it out for herself. I don't care if you call me 100 times today, because I'd rather hear as soon as I can and get on it. It's almost like he's deputized her. Sometimes they seem like colleagues. I can't tell whose strategy that is or whether it's working, but it seems to calm things. In the end, the broken scanner wasn't a big deal. Finally, when we get near seven, when polls will close, poll watchers start piling in from voting sites around the county. Not as many as we'd expected. When Aubrey walks in, her first question is about Hyder. Do you know where he is? She says to someone. He probably doesn't want me walking around here too much on my own. Again, Hyder and Aubrey interact like colleagues almost. Colleagues who don't really like each other? Frenemies? Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. How's it going? Notice how they're talking past each other. But so politely. The lines were kind of long, but um, but they're moving quick, a, aren't they? The, well, the ones I went to, uh, what's it called Euless Family Center. Uh huh. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's it, a great place. It's really big, open. Is that is, the one? Yeah. But man, they had so many people. Yeah. Um, and they said they could have used an extra poll book or two. Okay. Um, this way. Well, you know the way. Finally, it's time to count the votes. There's one hilarious-looking ritual first. Oh, here we go. The walk of shame. 
the absentee ballots are on a USB drive. And to move that USB drive into the tally room, where they'll be added to the results, the drive is lifted high into the air for all watchers to see and marched like a winning quarterback into the next room. It's like symbolic of Hyder's whole approach to things, flamboyantly transparent. Someone holds a GoPro up high, so the entire march of the USB drive is recorded. In case anyone asks later, what happened between the two rooms? We shouldn't build like a, a chair, <laughs> like a throne chair, and we should carry it on the shoulders, all of us, in the procession. But with a, just, a, just a USB drive sitting on the chair. We get to the back room where they're counting votes. This is where the hardcore election skeptics are camped out for the night. There's Amy. She's in a red, white, and blue dress with a clipboard, scrutinizing the way the ballot bags are sealed. Mike, he's a retired air mechanic who says, if we can audit planes, why can't we do better with elections here? He's there. Karen, she has a lawsuit against Hyder. There's maybe a dozen people he deals with regularly, like Aubrey. He knows all of these people well, and he's trying to anticipate what they'll want. And does it work? Are they satisfied? Um, he is, I will say this, Hyder makes other election administrators look like idiots. Again, here's Aubrey. Well, he'll answer all your questions. So we're getting places. He's made some changes that I like. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Like what? Oh, he's adding all of the um, result tapes for Election Day onto the website. He's doing a lot of uh, stuff that's helping, and that's more than, than like, other election administrators. Do you yeah. think that's helped in any way like your confidence in the system, if you will? It's, um, no, not in the system. I do not trust the system. But it's helped me understand the system more. Trust it? No, I don't trust computerized voting systems. Computers can be hacked. They always, they always can. Um, whether that's happening right now, we're unable to fully investigate. Even after everything Hyder's done to convince her otherwise, she doesn't believe the process is secure enough in Tarrant County to say for sure that the votes were accurately counted. This past year, I've wondered... Can you convince someone that an election is not stolen? And what I realized watching Hyder is, that is not the right question to ask right now. That's an endpoint we're not going to arrive at. The activists aren't going away. Instead, what Hyder's trying, he's integrating the election skeptics and all their questions into the election's office and the way it works. It's the job. Maybe there's no point. Maybe that's just the job. You know, maybe there's no... Endgame. Maybe that's this is the way it is, you know. Like I said, if there's a shooting, police jumps into it. There's a fire, firefighters. I mean, there are questions. We that's ours. We, you know, not because it's going to end, because it's your job. It's your job. It's simple. And in this new normal, on this election night, the job's gone as well as he could hope. The activists still have their doubts. A few of them already setting up meetings with Hyder for later that week. There's a new conspiracy every day. But no one yells. No one throws a fit, saying they're being obstructed. And Hyder rushes around to everyone, like the anxious owner of a restaurant, checking on the regulars, making sure they have everything they need. And the votes get counted. Natalia Contreras is a reporter with VoteBeat. You can find her work at votebeat.org. Zoe Chase is a producer on our show. Coming up, 
We watch a guy during the exact moment he is crossing through the looking glass to the other side. And we can see it because he's on national TV on a game show. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This is American Life from Harvard Glass. Today on our program, Through the Looking Glass, people trying to coax each other across the border from one way of seeing the world to another way. We have arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, who is Ryan Long. So in this story, uh, you're going to see a guy trying to actually coax himself through the looking glass from one reality into another. Lots of people actually saw him do this. One of our producers, Bim Arunmi, was one of them. Back in May, I became mildly obsessed with a stranger on TV. He was a big guy. He looked black, biracial maybe, and he was wearing a light purple shirt under a black vest. I was ill on my sofa. It was 7 p.m. on a Friday. You know what that means. This is Jeopardy! Introducing today's contestant, a rideshare driver from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Brian Long. A rideshare driver. I watch a lot of Jeopardy, but if you don't, you might not know that it is not that common among all the professors and the grad students and other learned contestants to see an Uber driver. Also unusual in my years of watching, big black guys. Ryan won that first game, and then he kept on winning. In the end, he won almost $300,000 over 16 games, becoming the ninth winningest Jeopardy winner of all time. After pretty much every win, he would do this thing that I began to look forward to. He'd grip the lectern, look down, almost defiantly refusing to meet the host's eye, and shake his head. His body language basically screamed, this can't be real. This is impossible. Ryan, congratulations. With $18,800, you are our new Jeopardy! champion. I took a photo of Ryan on my TV screen that first night he won and posted it to Instagram. You have my sword. I captioned the photo. A line from The Lord of the Rings. Here's the thing about me. I love trivia. I was a childhood library lurker who hoarded facts, just waiting to bust them out and impress people. I love remembering dates and locations, and I delight in wordplay. Watching Ryan win again and again reminded me of myself a little, except he was me to the power of 100. It sounds condescending and weird because we're about the same age, in our very late 30s, but I was proud of him, I think. I rarely feel affection for Jeopardy winners. They're too mannered, too serious, too odd. But I was rooting for Ryan. I felt like I knew him. He had tweeted after his winning run something that stuck with me, something about a box. Sometimes, he wrote, it seems like society put you in a box and you were classified as a certain thing with a certain destiny, even though you may feel differently inside. I wondered how somebody who felt so familiar to me had ended up dominating the Jeopardy stage. What was that like for him? What box did he think he was in? And how had Jeopardy helped him break out of it? Honestly, I just wanted to meet him. And so, along with my colleague and co-Ryan fan, Zoe Chase, I got on a train to Philadelphia. He met us in his new truck at the station, which, by the way, we knew immediately that was Ryan's car. It still has that new car gleam, and it is huge. Exactly the car you would expect from a man whose happy place is his car. Even before he became a rideshare driver, he would spend hours driving around, 
navigating the potholes of Philly with his music on. So Zoe and I ended up spending all day on the road with him and meeting a couple of his friends. And the first question from Ryan felt like something you might ask a friend. All right, um, let's start with a weird question. Do either one of you have any lotion? Lotion? I have hand cream. Is that going to do? That'll do. Okay. I just have face moisturizer. Yeah, my arms are so dry. Oh, bless you. How are you? And about 20 minutes after we'd met, an aside about Michael Jackson's autobiography somehow led us here. Who's your favorite Bond? Connery. What? Wow. What? That's amazing. I feel like, I don't know, I always feel Connery is up there, but you know who my favorite is? Seriously? Don't say Daniel Craig. No. Oh. Timothy Dalton? Timothy Dalton! He's, he's my, he was my, uh, oh. they would go back and forth. He never got the respect he, he was doing. He never got the never. respect he deserved! Oh yeah. my god. Okay, good. I'll tell you this for free. There is no loneliness, like the loneliness of those of us in the Timothy Dalton is the best James Bond camp. I'm telling you. Oh my god, I love Timothy Dalton. I watched so the Living Daylight, oh Daylight so many times. I, uh, I and, met, I met and then the way they hit, the way he always hit the words. Like, yes. Yes, talking to the, um, the Russian guy, Yuri Koskov. 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 And when he's talking to when he goes Felix Slater. You, he was, you could tell he was a stage actor. He was actually the road to the Alex Trebek stage at Sony Pictures Studios started early for Ryan. Like me, he was a voracious reader who liked to read the dictionary for fun. Unlike me, Ryan was reading the newspaper by the age of two. And his mum Angela told me he used to carry the cards from the Trivial Pursuit game she'd bought. One of his favourite childhood books was Anguished English, an anthology of grammar humour. And yes, Ryan loved Jeopardy. I would have loved to met Alex Trebek. Like, he was a hero in my house. He's the only one of the few white men I know that could pull off a perm. <laughs> Ryan, who's a big man now, described himself as husky when he was a kid, which made him feel awkward and self-conscious. Plus, he was also in the midst of working out his mixed identity back then, his mum is black and his father was white. And on top of that, he was an obviously smart kid. So they put him in the gifted classes, which also made him feel a little isolated. Well, I was smart and stupid at the same time. I had no idea how to relate to people. I had no idea how to... I lived in my head. Mm-hmm. Which is good for, like, accumulation of stuff, but... Yeah. Perhaps less useful. But not useful. great for, you know, relating to other people. Uh-huh. I used to downplay my intelligence like a motherfucker. Really? Ooh, like crazy. I would, I, you know, I'd just stay quiet because, like, I would have an opinion on a topic or something like that, and then I was I was afraid that it would go over the other kids' heads and they would look at me like I got three eyes or something. So I would just keep my mouth shut. Like, you feel like you got to fit in. This was his first understanding that people have ideas about you, and those ideas might not match how you feel about yourself. It was also the first time Ryan felt put into that box that he tweeted about. And in order to fit, he had to cut parts of himself off. In the end, Ryan didn't do great at school. His parents had split up when he was 13, and he'd gone to live with his dad. A few years later, when he was 17, his father died, and Ryan moved back in with his mum. According to Ryan, he barely graduated high school, and then did a year of community college before dropping out. It's like he got so used to hiding away the brightest parts of himself that he got really good at it. Too good. The way Ryan tells it, 
he settled into the role of underachiever. And that made him prone to self-sabotage. It'll be something like a subconscious thing where, like, I know I got an important meeting or something. Like, I got to be somewhere. And my brain, I'll have this urge just like, ah, you know what, just roll over. Instead of getting up because I know it's important, it's like, yeah, just roll over, whatever. Doesn't mean that much. You don't need this. You don't, it's not that important. You don't want it. And I'll oversleep or I'll be late or, you know, won't show up. Something like that. It happens a lot. You know, especially for things that could, you know, potentially benefit me. Because some part of me is like, either this is stupid or, you know, you don't deserve it or something. It's, and that's, I'm pretty sure that's depression. For all the potential of his you know, big brain, uh, Ryan had the I, feeling I, that life was slipping him by. And when he became a father in his 30s, the question of lost potential became moot. He needed money to live and to provide. So he did all sorts of jobs. Airport security worker, warehouse grunt, package handler, office clerk. Piano mover, water ice guy, worked at UPS, was a cashier, was a bouncer, uh, was a street sweeper for a couple weeks. Gotta do what you gotta do, right? But then in January 2021, Ryan got sick with COVID. He had it really bad and was in hospital for three weeks. He had to be given oxygen to stay alive and he still has the photo of his saturated lungs given to him by his doctor as a reminder of how close he came to death. When he was discharged, he was a wreck. His knee gave out and he got diabetes. More than 20 years of the working grind seemed to catch up to him all at once. Felt like I felt like in the moment like I'd wasted my life thus far. I hadn't done anything I wanted to do. I hadn't gone anywhere that I wanted to go. And I started feeling like maybe I didn't have a huge amount of time left. And uh, like my dad died young, his dad died young. Like, I didn't want to have to do that to my kid. Like, I found my dad did. So maybe, you know what, if you're going to have a memory of me, have a, have a good one. Getting COVID and surviving it was, in Ryan's own words, a rockfall that turned into a landslide. It made him want to get out of his old habit of minimizing himself, this urge to snatch defeats from the jaws of victory. That's when he got the call from Jeopardy. He'd taken the online test on a whim. And now, Ryan thought, this could be the thing he'd been hoping would come along to shake things up. That question I'd had about his journey to Jeopardy, it turns out the literal trip was a joint effort. He had about $200 to spare that month, and he had to make his own way to California. So he turned to his mum and his friends. He borrowed his mother's luggage and packed some black trousers plus two shirts one he'd bought himself, and the other bought by his mum. Remember how he made the decision as a teenager to hide his light under a bushel so he could be more normal? Now he was making another decision. This time, the guy whose tendency was to downplay his intelligence and his abilities was not going to get in his own way. The work was on me where I had to first acknowledge that I wanted it, give myself permission to want it, and say, okay, we're going to do this thing, and we're going to do it right, and not, uh, we're not going to screw it up. He got on the plane to California. He'd never been off the East Coast in his life. He was determined to enjoy himself, and he told himself, I mean, no expectations. Failure, 
Unlike some other wannabe winners, he did no tutorials on technique, no arduous studying. Like these are people that, like all year long, they study, they like buying books on the buzzer technique and all that. Like when I found out that people, you know, did that, <laughs> I, was, I felt like maybe I was like, oh, should I have studied? I guess maybe. You didn't pick up like the big book of Jeopardy questions. I didn't have time. I was working. I was working like up until right before I left. On the day of his first game, Ryan felt overwhelmed, but he worked through it. He let himself cry, which was an effective release valve for some of the emotional turmoil he was feeling. And then he pumped himself up with some music. Once he felt more in control, he headed to the studio, to the show he'd watched since he was a little boy in Philly. Felt like hallowed ground, man. Jeopardy, stage, yeah. Like when you get up there, looks exactly like um, when Luke fought Vader on Bespin and the Empire Strikes Back, the lighting. Oh, really? The red stare and then the blue background. It's just like, that was the first thing I noticed when I got up there. I was like, oh my God. Really felt like something, man. Sawyer and Tyrion Lannister. Ryan. It was Peter Dinklage. Yes, and you just ran that category. So that was a somewhat nerdy beginning of his 16-game streak. He puts his success down to two things, knowing stuff and staying calm under pressure. Ryan. Who's Jesse Owens. Correct. In game mode, Ryan's demeanor was testament to the decision he'd made to go out there and just have fun. He laughed at himself when he flubbed the daily double or realized he had bet too low on an easy answer. He delivered his cute little anecdotes in the getting to know you segments. But once the game was won, that easy grace was gone. Congratulations, you are our Jeopardy! champion. Another fantastic week for Ryan Long. Instead, when his new total winnings were announced, he'd do that thing I loved, the head duck, and looking like he wanted the ground to swallow him up. Couldn't believe it, I heard it every time. Every time? Every time I heard it, I was like, this, nah, I, I don't think I could, uh, that, that didn't happen to me, <laughs> you know? So I guess Ryan and I met on the very first day, well, my only day of taping on Jeopardy and Ryan's second day, I guess it was. That's Brad yeah. Pearson. He was a challenger of Ryan's, also a Philly local. The two of them stayed friends after the show. They even had a little watch party at Brad's house the night his episode aired. Over cheesesteaks, he told us about playing against Ryan in his fifth game. Contestants get to watch preceding games before they tape theirs, and all eyes were on Ryan, the returning champ, game after game. Brad was sitting with Tony, another of the pool of challengers. As the day progressed, Tony turns to me at one point during like the third game, and he goes, he's only getting stronger. <laughs> Brad noted the same thing I did, that Ryan was a real all-rounder, banging out answers to everything from biblical locations to the alumni of Saturday Night Live. Like, when I think of Ryan as a player, the thing is that, like, you find certain people that are, like, good at, like, some really specific stuff. But Ryan's knowledge is so across the board and also does really good on things that, like... I gotta go take a walk. This is gonna sound bad, but, like, there's, like... Ryan actually moved away when Brad was talking about him so admiringly. It's like the glare of praise was too bright for his eyes. He couldn't look directly at it. He did something similar when his mum bragged about him 
and again when his friend Mari, who we also met, mentioned how great of a guy he was. His face got all scrunched up, like it physically pained him to hear. But even so, over the course of his games, he beat contestants with far more impressive on paper CVs. Even after winning, he knew that he wasn't seen as a typical Jeopardy winner. I don't look smart. I guess whatever that means. Uh, I look like a bruiser. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people underestimate me a lot. Like, I know I'm, I know I'm kind of smart. I know what I can do. There was a little bit of, uh, a little tiny bit of class satisfaction. I don't, I don't mind admitting it. Yeah. That I came in and beat, you know, all these wonderful people. Like, people like my mom, people like me, like, we've always watched the show. We just never been represented on the show before, I guess you could say. We're out here. Ryan's tweet thread about the box. He'd written that he didn't really believe a person could break out of the box. But, he added, I feel like this thing that just happened is proof that you can. And I wondered what he'd found outside of the box since he had managed to get out. Returning to Philly, it was hard for Ryan to know how to act. His episodes wouldn't be on television for another few weeks. It was like he had to pretend something monumental hadn't just happened to him. There's no way to talk about Ryan's time on the show without talking about the money he won. $299,400 is quite the windfall. He no longer works as a rideshare driver, having paid off his old car and bought this new truck. Um, On the advice of his mum, he met up with a couple of people from a community improvement group for advice about what to do with his new earnings. Their advice was that he prioritise himself first, a concept that was completely foreign to him, and set up a chain reaction of self-improvements. I wasn't a very reflective person or anything like that, and and I neglected myself for about 30 years. You know, so I figured now is the time. I have a rare, I have a rare chance, which it seems like a lot of a lot of Americans don't have anymore. Is I got time to improve myself, take a real good look at myself. You know. Ryan started working out again. He got himself a therapist. He went digging in his family tree and found a book written by his third-time great-grandfather, a staunch Methodist abolitionist, and. He bought movies. I love, love, love films. I'll buy the extra special, deluxe, whatever, whatever, if I can. So every July, the Criterion sale is 50% off, and every year something happens and I can't afford to go. And I was like, I'm going this year. Going. (laughs) What's the first one you're going to watch, do you reckon? Oh, you know, I think I'm going to watch Raging Bull. When I heard the Criterion was coming out with the 4K, I was like, oh my God, yes. So great. It's a great movie. Difficult to watch, though. Horrible to watch in places. Difficult, but also, it's also difficult because every every man, like, can recognize a part of himself in Jake LaMotta. Like, some small part or, you know, some of us more than others. Mm Mm-hmm. We all have that ugly, competitive <clears throat> sort of thing inside us, however, however small. Or that ugly, like that self-loathing type beast, you know? 
getting to finally buy Criterion movies, working on his Lamosa-style self-loathing, spending hours researching family history, the whole Project Ryan. It's being facilitated by the most precious commodity his Jeopardy run brought him. So clearly Jeopardy changed your life. So what is your it life now? me the opportunity to, like, to have time to do this, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't have had time to do anyway. What's this? Examine myself, I guess. Like just, you know, just everything before, looking where, looking where I come from, and what makes me tick. It's a, it's a valuable thing. I think everybody needs to do it, but not everybody has time to do it. You know? So that's like the biggest post-Jeopardy change is just as an abundance of time for you now? Yeah, yeah. That's the most valuable thing that I got out of this. Not the money. Well, the money made the time possible. So <laughs> they say money can't buy happiness, but it buys everything that makes you happy, even time. <laughs> I had come to Philly to talk to Ryan about navigating outside expectations as they crashed up against what he thought about himself. And I got that. But I also got this accidental reflection on American capitalism and how so many of us are served so poorly by the way life is currently set up as all work and no time. Jeopardy provided a very specific Ryan-shaped escape hatch. It gave him the space to stare into that crack between realities and fish out all the elements of what his life could be. Biamata Wunmei is one of the producers of our show. Welcome is produced today by Lily Sullivan. The people who put together our show include Bim Matawumni, Ona Baker, Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Michael Kamate, Aviva de Cornfell, Cassie Halley, Hannah Joffe, Wald, Valerie Kipnis, Tobin Glow, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Ryan Rummery, Alyssa Ship, Laura Storcheski, Christopher Sotala, Marisa Robertson Texter, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu, our managing editors, Sarah Abdurrahman, our senior editors, David Kestenbaum, our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Nathan Rott, Katerina Malafeva, Jessica Huseman, Troy Havid, Stacey Beheimer, Lizzie Berryman, Rachel Van Landingham, Jake Perlman, and Jacob Rocky. Our website, where you can stream our archive of over 700 episodes for absolutely free during your holiday travel, and where we have merch for all your gift-giving needs, including new t-shirts, sweatshirts, and onesies, posters, temporary tattoos. Where does all this magic happen? ThisAmericanLife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks as always to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, he has always wanted that job at NASA. You know the one doing the countdown when they launch a rocket? But I don't know. I don't think he's got the right stuff. Three, two, one. I'm Aaron Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. You fade away, how can I get to know you?